else? All right, so we are talking about the seven essential tenets of the Reformed tradition. The first is to believe that God is sovereign, and today we're going to talk about what is called the centrality of Jesus Christ. But let's begin with prayer. Gracious God, over and over from the very beginning of creation, you have reached out to humanity in love, in rebuke at times, always calling us to live as your people in the world. And so we pray that you would speak to us again this day and that we would hear your word for us and we would go out to live in the world as your people. We ask this all in Jesus's name, for it was he who showed us the way. Amen. All right, my friends. So what we're talking about today is really Christology. Um, we're going to talk about kind of the historical development of how people thought about Jesus at different times. And like we've done all along, I don't know if you've caught on yet, but I give you like the, the church fathers, which is before about year 600. And then we're going to skip ahead to the Reformation. And then we're going to talk in terms of contemporary, not because nothing happens in those places, but because we're hitting highlights and it's just a, an overview. Um, okay, so Christology, who we believe Jesus Christ is, is always a discussion of who Jesus is in relation to God and who Jesus is in relation to humanity. That's the question that has been tried to be answered over and over again. In a way, when we talk about belief, that's the question we are asked. Who do we believe Jesus is? Is Jesus God? Who is Jesus to us today? So that's the foundation of, of our belief, as Jerry was talking about. When we talk about Jesus, we know that you cannot separate the person of Jesus with the work of Jesus. And what I mean by that is it's the fully human, fully God thing, right? When you talk about Jesus, you cannot separate the fact that he was human and lived from the fact that he also came as God to save, to die, and redeem us. However, when we talk about it in terms of theology, those two things are often talked about as being separate, the humanity of Jesus and the divinity, okay? So even though we may talk about it in those terms, what it means for Jesus to be human, what it means for Jesus to be God, they're really inseparable but we have limits in terms of language and reason. And so we have to kind of break those out. So if, for instance, I'm talking about um, the human Jesus who walked on earth and what he showed us, I am in no way saying that he was only human and a great teacher. We are assuming that Jesus is Christ and those two things, the work of Jesus as God and his humanity are always together. Let's talk a little bit about the church, what are called the church fathers, those patriarchs like Augustine, uh, Constantine, who really started um, the, the first creeds and who started to kind of elucidate what we believe the doctrines of the church. So in 451, so this would be after uh, the council at Nicaea, after um, the second council of Nicaea, we have uh, a council at Chalcedon. 
And here's what's interesting about the, the, the Council of Chalcedon. Um, there's something called the Chalcedonian definition, and it is basically a statement on who Jesus is. Now, what do you, from the Nicene Creed, we have that the biggest issue with the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed is how does Jesus relate to God? So in the Nicene Creed, we have he is very God of very God, um, light from light, very much emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. That's our first creed, which would have been important, yes, because that creed was written the closest to when he was actually human and walked on earth. So it would seem that they were assured of his humanity. And so then the question becomes in that creed and in the next one, um, it would be, how do we describe um, who Christ is? And so the first thing that the Chalcedonian definition does is, and I'm, I'm telling you specifically about the Chalcedonian definition because John Calvin took this definition and it was the basis for his Christology. So the first thing it does is what I told you at the beginning. The Chalcedonian definition of who Jesus Christ is talks about the unity of Jesus, fully human, fully God. That's one of the first times where we see that phrase really delineated. But the second thing that the Chalcedonian definition does is it says that, yes, Jesus was fully human and fully God, but if we're going to talk about Jesus we can talk about his humanity and we can talk about his divinity, that there are two natures in Jesus. They're united, but there are two different natures. Again, all theology is splitting hairs. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like a big deal at this point. But the way Calvin and later church reformers take that is going to be the basis of how we think about communion. All right. So just hang tight with me. But the Chalcedonian definition affirms the unity of Jesus Christ as divine and human, but it says that there are two natures. There is uh, his nature as human, where he can relate to other humanity. He can understand us. And there is his nature as God that is other and holy. All right. You with me so far? <laughs> um, it's also interesting because this, um, the Chalcedonian uh, definition has so in the Apostles' Creed, we have positive statements, right? I believe in, and it tells you what you believe. Some creeds have the I believe, but then they also have the and we don't believe in this. And the Chalcedonian definition has three things specifically that they argue against. Why is that important? Because if you say it from the beginning, all those people who are out there arguing it can just stop. We've already answered it. And so I think it's interesting to look at what were the things that were being said that the council felt like they had to include a statement against. The first one is um, from the early church father Nestorius. And he said that there were really two discrete persons who were just united in one skin that they never had any sort of overlap. They were two discrete persons in one skin. And the early church father says, no, that's not true. There are two different natures, but not two different specific people or deities in one skin. 
The second thing that it refutes is Arianism. So what Arius said was, if we believe God is unchangeable, if God knows all and is everywhere, Jesus Christ was human, right? And Jesus Christ could be killed and could change, was mutable. And so Arian said that, um, that we needed to focus on the fact that Jesus was more human than God. Okay? Um, that because Jesus could change, because Jesus had a creative body that grew and died, well, that's not something an all-knowing and unchanging God would do. So for Arius, he erred to the side of what we now call that he was just a good teacher, <laughs> right? He was a human and he was just, he was a good teacher. He told us a lot about God, but not really God. And so they make a statement that that is not right either. And then the last one was from Eutychus. And Eutychus' argument was that there were two natures. And when Christ came into the world, those two natures combined. And so Jesus was more God than human. Um, because that combination can only happen if God wants it to happen. A human being can't will, will that they would be combined with God. So that must mean that Jesus is more God. And the Chalcedonian definition says over and over that Jesus Christ is one entity. But we can talk about Jesus if we talk about two natures the divine and the human. Okay. There are people who spent their whole lives writing about this. Can you imagine? I cannot either. <laughs> um, so that was the, um, the four withouts that I wanted to talk about. So let's look a little further and move up to the um, reformed, the, the Protestant Reformation. All right. So. Um, in the Protestant Reformation, particularly in the early Belgic confessions, we see the language of one God and three persons, the marrying of spirit, God, and Jesus into one person. Um, Christ incarnation is said to be real and true. It is a reaffirming of the fully human and fully God. And that because that's who Jesus was, he experienced all of humanity except for sin. And so if we are looking to someone to be, I think the phrase is pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we look to Christ because Christ knows intimately what it means to be human yet without sin, which is what God hopes and wills for us. Um, the church reformers also um, talked a lot about the idea that um, there is Jesus's um, created being and Jesus's glorified being. That in the world was the baby born, grown on the cross and died. And then there is also Jesus Christ living, resurrected, um, with the Father, and still working in the world. And I think that still working in the world is one of the really important parts. 
Here's the biggest difference between what the early church fathers did and what the reformers did. The early church fathers made statements about who Jesus was by looking at who God was in the Jewish tradition and then making their inferences from that, okay? The reformers said, especially John Calvin, we need to start with scripture, not what we've always believed, not what has been taught to us in what is now the Old Testament, but we need to start with scripture. And a thorough reading of scripture will tell us who Jesus Christ is, and then we can make inferences to who he is in relation to God. So the way to think about it is the early church fathers took a top-down approach. They looked at who God was in the history of the Jewish people, and then they made inferences about Jesus. The reformers came along and said, you know what, let's start with Jesus and what we learn about him in the scriptural text, and then we'll make inferences about who he is in terms of God and humanity. Again, a very small change, but I think you will see borne out in our tradition today that to speak about God is always held up against the scriptural witness, right? We, one of the reasons why um, the sermon has been prominent in our tradition um, for a very long time is because it's the word of God. Um, now, the truth is that everything else in the service should be the word of God, too. Um, you know, our call to confession, the hymns that we sing should be rooted in scripture. But we have become a people who are, we're, you know, we're called people of the word. We always look at what scripture says, and then we hold up everything else to that in order to get to truth. Any questions on that so far? It's amazing, right? Um, two, well, one heresy that um, the reformers argued against was docetism. And there was a movement within the church shortly after the Protestant Reformation that said that Jesus's resurrected being was really just a ghost or a phantom, that it wasn't a real bodily resurrection. And the reformers rejected that outright. We see that in the, the earliest church creeds, but the reformers really doubled down on that, that to believe in Jesus Christ is to believe in a bodily resurrection, that when he says to Thomas, put your finger in my side, that there is real flesh, that there is real um, healing in that place in a way it wasn't, it wasn't an apparition. Um, so that's one of the heresies that they're arguing about at this time. Here's where we depart from good old Martin Luther. <laughs> um, John Calvin was very clear. I'm trying to think about how to put this as simply as possible, which ain't easy. Um, John Calvin was very clear that when we have the three natures, when we have God, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are distinct and yet unified. And that the physical presence of Christ is resurrected and with God. 
So Martin Luther said that because Jesus Christ was resurrected and is with God, that means that he must be everywhere. So when you take communion in the Lutheran church, you believe it's actually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the same as our Catholic brothers and sisters, right? You are very careful with the host because Christ's resurrected body means that Christ can now be everywhere and particularly in the host. John Calvin said, just because Christ has resurrected does not mean he's actually physically present in the cup and the bread. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe communion is a symbol, right? We're not just remembering the Last Supper. Calvin tried to thread this needle of saying that, yes, it is symbol in that it is bread and cup, but that the presence of Christ will be with us in a special way in the bread and in the cup to build us up for the work of the church. Okay? So not actual flesh, but there somehow so that we have this presence of God in the world. Does that make sense to anyone? No, they're very quiet. This is a lot of Tara. Um, one of the other things that I think was really important that um, John Calvin did is he gave us the analogy of Jesus Christ as um, prophet, as priest, and as king. This is a way that Calvin tried to explain how he saw God. And Calvin said that Jesus was a prophet, that he came to show us how God wants us to live in the world. That's what prophets did, right? Prophets would come and say, you're doing this wrong. God wants you to do this. And so Calvin said, Jesus Christ was a prophet who came to show us what God wanted. But he also said that Jesus Christ was a priest. What did priests do in the Old Testament? They did the sacrifices, right? They are the ones who held the atoning sacrifice in order that you might be made in right relationship with God. And Calvin said that Christ became the ultimate priest in sacrificing of himself so that we might for all time be made right with God. And then the last thing is that um, Calvin said that Jesus Christ also operated as a king as someone who would say to his people, let me lead you into helping the world as our leader in that way. And that is at the heart of how Calvin um, and John Knox really see who Jesus is. He is all of those things. And we can talk about them in different ways, but it is still one unified being. Any questions about that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Calvin, nor any of the early church reformers, and I don't even think. I can't think of a single theologian, and that's not saying much, Jerry, because I don't know all the theologians and what they think, who is able to describe 
or even attempt to explain what happens in the ascension. Um, it's just we, we, we claim that he ascended into heaven. Which is interesting, right? Because Mark's gospel, the one that was written the earliest, it ends with the resurrected Jesus, right? It ends with seeing his resurrected body. Um, the other gospels talk about those later resurrection appearances and his ascension into heaven. Anything else? Yeah, the only one. Uh, Taken in a whirlwind. Yeah, and, and what's interesting, I think, about um, that story is that there's also no attempt to explain it. Do you know what I mean? Like, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. Well, all right then. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> um, I, I would assume there's lots of midrash, which are rabbis, who have tried to figure that out over the years. But in the canon of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, and in our tradition, he's just taken away in a whirlwind. It is presumed that it is because he was so faithful to God, he did not have to suffer the indignity of death. Yes. Some people thought he did. That is not, I don't believe, um, that's not church doctrine, but there was discussion and there was discussion about Jesus. Is this Elijah? Did Elijah come back? Because there was an expectation that because Elijah didn't die, he could come back at any time as a prophet. And so that's why in the New Testament, when you're confronted with John the Baptist and with Jesus, these two very strange individual, everybody's like, maybe it's Elijah. Um, that's their first guess usually. Yes. So the only gospel that speaks directly to that is John's gospel, which says in the beginning, meaning at the very beginning of creation, the word Jesus was with God and the word was God. Uh, the doctrine of Christianity is such that because we believe Jesus is God, he had to have been pre-existent in some way as God, but that it is the choice to become birthed that we see humanity. Does that make sense? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, did I answer your question in some way? Eric, mm, okay. Um, Era, could you repeat? Totally. Questions. Um, I think... The modern scholar who has done the most work on Christology in a really lovely way is Karl Barth. And Karl Barth essentially took the above, coming from above theology of who we think God is and then connecting it to Christ. And then he took the biblical witness and he molded those together. No longer was it like the church fathers, really just about the doctrine of who we think God is and we connect that to Jesus. And it wasn't John Calvin who has to have a footnote of scripture for everything and the more the merrier. Um, instead, Bart would take them all and try to hold them together. Um, there's not anything particularly new, I think, that comes out of Bart's Christology, um, but it is the way that he holds together 
the God of the Old Testament and what we know about that God as unchangeable and eternal with the scriptural witness. All right, so here's why all of this is important. If I can find the notes I made, yes, I can. Okay. To be reformed, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is at the center of everything. That everything we know about God and everything we know about spirit is born out in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was a created being as we are, and because Jesus entered into the world with humanity, we can count him as the um, most assured witness of what the word of God is. So to live, to see Christ live out, that's why I ask you, what do you see that is the one sure thing that you are sure of? To see Christ live that out, that is always the most compelling uh, information, the most compelling witness to what God wants for all of humanity. That does not mean that the Holy Spirit isn't also working in our lives, revealing who God is, maybe revealing new facets of who Jesus is for us, but that everything we do in the church should always be held up to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our confessions are clear that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Now, if you are like me and you have grown up in the South your whole life, and particularly if your Baptist grandparents got a hold of you, that means unless you make a public proclamation of faith, you will not be saved. I don't think the confessions go that far. The confessions say that it is belief in Christ that will lead to, salva lead to salvation. But as we've talked about before in terms of judgment, I don't know that that's necessarily time bound. I don't know that that has to be done right now or if there will be an opportunity after death, when we are confronted with Christ in a new way that we will be able to believe. But we do believe that salvation comes through Christ. I also think we have to think of salvation in terms of not a fire insurance, as my grandfather would call it, but that it is something that can lead us to living more fully into who we are and into who the world can be. And think of it in terms of if we believe in Christ, if we are trying to live our lives as Christ would want, that's the only way the world will be saved. And when I say saved, I mean taught how to love, taught how to care for those who have least, taught how to break down all the barriers that divide us. So salvation in that sense is not fire insurance. It's a way you live in the world and it, is, it allows us to be the fullest that humanity could be. All right, um, I talked to you about John Calvin's three. Okay, I wanna read you something from the Scots Confession that I think is really at the heart of what it means to be um, a leader in the church, but, well, let me just read it and then we'll talk about it. This is from the Scots Confession, okay? And so when it talks about the kirk, that means the church, okay? So this is what it says. When controversy arises, 
about the right understanding of any passage or sentence of scripture or for the reformation of any abuse within the Kirk of God. We ought not so much to ask what men have said and done before us. We should ask what the Holy Ghost speaks uniformly within the body of Scripture and in what Jesus Christ himself did and commanded. Whenever there is any disagreement about what Scripture says, about what the church should be or do, we should always look to the Holy Spirit and what it reveals in the person of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And those things that we find spoken uniformly, and that means that we can find those statements over and over again in the Bible, then that's what we should do. How many times in the church have we made statements that the majority could agree upon, but maybe not the uniformity of the body? Lots. And in fact, that often that often tears the body of Christ apart. But there are those things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself that we are absolutely sure of, that we see Jesus live out over and over again. And so that is the rule by which we should be making decisions and not on what people did before or even what the church fathers have done. Does that make sense? I think that's one of the most compelling things about um, the Reformation and about our tradition, that it is always what the Holy Spirit reveals and what we can confirm in the person and work of Jesus Christ that should guide us. It goes on to say, it is agreed by all that the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of unity, cannot contradict God's self. That also means that every time our church has had to reform, every time the church has done something that we know in only in hindsight has been sinful and we want to change going forward, we don't say that God changed. God has always called for us to be that way. We've only, we're only just now catching on. Um, And I think that's important to remember for us as we live today. What are the things that we are absolutely sure of that maybe the scales will be removed from our eyes and we'll see in a different way? We cannot presume we have it all correct. Any thoughts about that? So that means Jesus Christ is always at the center of any discernment. Um, always at the center of any um, study or learning that we do. Um, We have to always put Jesus Christ at the center. And the last thing I'll say is that in the Reformed tradition, we believe that if Jesus Christ is at the very center of our lives, we will start to identify all the other things that we have called Lord that are incorrect. So here's what I mean by that. If we truly believe in who Jesus is, and Jesus is at the center of who we are, we will start to realize all those false idols that we have had and that I still have, right? Um, And so to know Christ 
over and over again is also to know what we should not do, who we should not be. Any, any last thoughts or questions? I know, thank you, me too. Me too. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Anything else, y'all? Thank you so much. Um, that was a whole lot. Um, I will post this week's talk and last week's. I was out of town last week and I didn't get to do it. Um, so they will be up in case you can't sleep one night and you want to listen to them over and over again. My scary voice can lull you off to sleep. All right. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks, y'all.